This episode of Troxel Podcast is supported by Twin Motion, the simple, real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. And in this episode, I welcome Tyler Goss. Tyler is a thoughtful and strategic leader focused squarely on catalyzing change in the built environment through the leverage of novel technologies, business models, process improvement, and policy reform. Or as he puts it, problem solver. And if you look at his career pedigree, it is heavily technology focused. He's worked at Case, WeWork, Turner Construction, Disney, and most recently at Hypar. But I think after hearing what you just heard, the problem solver moniker works. Tyler and I finally met in person at the Designing Futures Council Leadership Summit on Technology and Applied Innovation, which is a mouthful of a conference name, in early 2020 after being loosely acquainted on Twitter. And it was an amazing event. It was where Tyler and others, including Daniel Davis, who was previously on the show as well, delivered a truly thoughtful presentation on the needs of the future of our profession, and it had very little to do with technology. This conversation is loose and spans a wide range of topics, and while I don't really want to list them all out here like I normally do in these introductions, I have some good teaser material from our conversation to whet your appetite. I actually wrote these down as the conversation was going on in real time because I thought they were funny or interesting or provocative. So here they are. We're actively lying to ourselves. A practice in the sublimation of dopamine. Everyone brings their baggage. And finally... I thought that was the future. So I hope that gets you excited for this conversation. So without further ado, I bring you Tyler Goss. I was supposed to go whitewater rafting with my 16 year old he just turned 16 i do like this uh coming of age trip with my boys uh cool. so I, ha- I still have one more boy to go he'll be 16 next year but i had to cancel it this was it had already been canceled once because he got sick mm. and now and now this happened so maybe next year now and it's like it's not gonna be the same next year he's gonna be 17 and yeah like there's just so much that happens in a year Right. And he has to share it now with his brother because his brother is 15 and next year he's 16. <laughs> right. right. You know, oh, I owe them individual trips, but, yeah. but it's, uh, it's, it's funny. Cause you think about like, why does time go by so fast? And I recently heard about this. I can't remember who, maybe it was, it might've been like Casey Neistat or something. It was a YouTube video. I think mm-hmm. it's like the older you get, you know, if you think about yourself at a young age, every new thing, it's one year apart, right? Which is a long time. But the older mm-hmm. you get, now you're dividing it by smaller amounts. So for 100% of his life, he has 17 of them. Yeah. For 100% of my life, I have 46 of them. So the pieces of the pie just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, and it's interesting, you know, I, I've like, as a segue into talking about work and practice, like, you know, I have gotten to the point now, I'm 43, right, uh, where I am not going to be the hands-on technologist anymore, right? right. I just, it's just not going to happen. That was, a, you know, moving into what does it mean to be a manager? What does it mean to be a leader in an organization? It was really difficult because, you know, you're used to, if you're, if you're a designer, you're, you're a you know, junior associate, 
you're a project manager, whatever you are, uh, you, uh, you get that dopamine hit when you draw the line mm-hmm. and it's the correct line, right? Mm-hmm. Or you move the wall and it makes the building better. And you don't get that anymore. You have to like the management and leadership is like a practice in sublimation of dopamine. So, you know, that, but you're going to get a great reward when your team takes off or when yes. the project is complete, but you don't get that individual hit every day. You don't get in, you know, we always talk about in, uh, in the software world, getting inside the user's dopamine cycle so that yeah. they, when they hit something, they get satisfied and they want to do it again. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's really hard when you're a manager to, to let go of that. You know? It's kind of like going on a mission where like you're going to go to a third world country and everybody comes back and it was like more impactful for the person who went than the people who were there and received the yeah. they, people always say like, Oh, I got, I got more out of this than, than they yeah. did. That to me is what leadership is, right? It's like by enabling other people to, to have that feeling that you have at scale yeah, should yeah. be that part of your life where, like you, you still get it because they're getting it because you're enabling them to get it because you're removing the roadblocks for them to see those advancements yeah. happen. And yeah. uh, that is so hard for people to cross that divide. I think. Yeah. That, and it's no longer about you. It can't, and yeah. it can't be about you. It has to be about the, the team. And you know, that's, and that's parenting too, right? Like, yeah. you know, I was talking to my wife the other day about, you know, how do we navigate the, like tough political and socioeconomic landscape that's going to be that our, our kids are going to inherit. And, mm-hmm. you know, I want to go out and I want to fight in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's like, no, but it's not, it's not our fight anymore. It's, it's our kids fight, right? They're, they're the ones who are going to hopefully, you know, right all of the, the, the wrongs that we did to the, to the planet as a, as a, as a generation. Right. There's a great, I think it's a great book. I watched like a, a visual book report by actually by Casey Neistat's brother, Van Neistat, who has a YouTube channel, which I freaking love. It's called the, the, uh, now that I, now that I'm about to say it, it's the spirited man. That's what it is. The spirited mm. man. So he has like kind of this persona that he makes videos about. And he did a book report on a book called the fourth turning and a turning is, you could think of it kind of like an era he breaks down every 80 years into a turning or no, sorry. It's a 80 years is, is like the era it's broken down Mm -hmm. into four parts. Every 20 years is a turning. We are in the fourth turning in the cycle. And he actually describes in the book the what it's kind of generational, but again, it's 20 years. So, you know, you've got the, the boomers, the gen Xers, the millennials and the gen Zers. And, he actually calls the Gen Xers. Actually, I don't remember what the Gen Xers were called. I called it the Fixers, but that was not correct. He had some other name for it. The Millennials are the ones who are actually like writing the wrongs. But yeah. the Gen Zers, which is who your kids are, are the artists. And that is when the new era begins. Oh, interesting. And it is kind of interesting to think about it for like from your wife's perspective, they're saying they're going to be, it's their fight. They're going to be the ones who take this into a new way. And, and right. it is interesting because he, he kind of, he, in North America specifically, he, he goes through these 80 year cycles and every 80 years, there has been a major, major crisis. COVID's ours. But before that, it was, various wars things like Mm -hmm. that so it's really interesting to kind of see it play out and they're saying you know the end of it is 2028 2030 somewhere around there it's never like clockwork but it's a it's in a general time and and that is when the artists blossom 
And I, that's, yeah, that gives me some hope. <laughs> yeah. It gives me hope too. Like the, the quote that's been running through my head constantly over the last, you know, five years since, since, uh, since the 2016 elections, the, the Gramsci quote, it's a very famous uh, Antonio Gramsci quote, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters, right? Mm-hmm. The, there mm-hmm. are all of the, 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 you know, we're creating right now these, because there is this flux between what the world was for us and what the world will be for our kids. Um, there's this incredible political flux. This is this is why the wars happen. This is why the crises happen. Is that that the our systems and our structures aren't capable of handling some, something that like spins out of control mm-hmm. and we can't manage it anymore. Yeah. And you know, and it, and it creates monsters. But the you know the nice thing is that those monsters don't live in the new world that is created. Right? They're, they're just to they're there to help the new world be born. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm looking that that we should have a quote battle because uh I'm thinking about <laughs> Buckminster Fuller. I'm pulling it up right now. He mm-hmm. said uh you never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something. Build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, it was funny that that re- reminds me of a story, you know, when I I uh so I, I was working in in Turner, at Turner as the regional director of VDC in New York. Um, and I got this opportunity to to come back to California, which mm-hmm. we've been trying to do for years anyway, to build a department in the Bay Area. And one of the first things when I got there uh, was there was this mandate to get the entire estimating and scheduling team skilled up on Revit and Vico. And Vico Office being this, it was a five D, four D, and five D mm-hmm. estimating scheduling tool. Uh, had pull scheduling. It was it was a pretty amazing platform and complex platform. But the reason they wanted to do it was because DPR was doing it. So they had to catch up to DPR. Mm. And I like that was this real moment for me uh, where I said, no, we don't want to catch up to DPR. You like, what is it that Turner is best at? Can we apply technology to where Turner is best to be an entirely different model than what, uh, you know, how, how uh, DPR was, was executing it and, and Obayashi and all the other companies in, in the Bay Area? So we went to, I went to our chief estimator and I had him pull all of his estimates for the last five years. And, and this is sort of like the beginning of my science-based approach to, to technology and innovation. I didn't pull all the estimates for five years. I went, and then I went to procurement and had him pull me all the budgets for the last five years. And the, 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 as, you know, the final budgets, the final uh, cost of the buildings. And we found that, that Bob, Bob Morelli, the, the estimator, his estimates were, his margin of error was about 5% overall, Right. But when I looked at the bid spread on all the bids, the bid spreads were, were eight to nine to 15% in some cases. So he was already within the margin of error of what you're getting from, for, from the, the bidding market. So I said, well, Bob, you don't need to be more accurate, which is what Vico was going to do. You need to be faster, right? So we need to, to be able to rapidly get quantities to him. And, you know, so this is, this is where we, this is back in 20, the dim distant past of 2012. Yeah, so he brought so in Salibri, right? Yeah. started using that to, to count quantities and, and got him just got him faster um, instead of trying to get him more accurate. And it, it worked out really well and, and became sort of a model, uh, I think, for, for how we, how we um, approached innovation at Turner in, the, in Northern California. Then you're not chasing something either, right? It's like, because you only know what what you think you know about yeah. another company. You don't actually yeah. know what's, so you, there's this perception that you're chasing. 
Yeah. And it's really hard to measure against that <laughs> from yeah. making decisions and seeing outcomes that like, how do you know when you've surpassed them? At some point you have to ignore your competition when it comes to that and really double down on what you are actually good at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, and that's hard to do because, you know, you are competing in a very tight, low margin environment, architects and, and engineers and contractors, all, we are all competing in a very tight margin environment. So you have to find differentiators and the, and the way to do that is to, it is to your point. You're, it's, it's not to do the same thing that everyone else is doing. That's table stakes. You have to do something different to catch the eye of, of folks. I actually was telling this story just recently that uh, back in New York, uh, I was working, I was managing the team that was coordinating tower two. So we were doing the continuous coordination in one room. All the trades were in there. They were modeling together. That was our first uh, experiment in continuous coordination, but we were doing Tower 2, and across the hall, Tishman was doing Towers 3 and 4. And I got to know Scott Wood, who was, the, who was leading that team. And you know, we obviously, whenever construction companies do sales pursuits, they have to do a 4D simulation of the building being built, right? All mm-hmm. the, then we realized that we, at that point, we realized those were table stakes. So we decided to join forces. So every time one of those, those competitions came out, that were, were the, one of those uh, contracts came out that everyone was chasing, we just did our, our 4D simulation together, right? And, and you know, sometimes it was his guy modeling it, sometimes it was my team modeling it just to save on effort so we could put the things into you know, more stuff that really mattered. And it was, no one ever noticed it, right? Because on this other side- You didn't even have to ask permission to do that. No. Because <laughs> no and, one ever noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and like you'd go, we'd go into presentations and you know, they'd see the same animation twice in a row, but the customer is not looking at it. Like it was, it was a way to prove that that was no longer a way to catch the eye of the customer, right? Yeah. There's so many technologies like that. And, and yeah. people still like to think of it as the differentiator when, like you said, it's, it's table stakes. It's like, we'll offer them this menu of items. It's like everything on that menu is table stakes. Come on. You, you've yeah. got to stop thinking of sustainability as a, a menu item. You've got to stop thinking of technology as a menu item. We, we do design. And yeah. design encompasses all that stuff. So it, it, it is interesting to think of uh, how how much of what we have kind of cut our teeth doing and implemented is now just full on table stakes. Like you, yeah. this is just normal. Yeah. And, you know, it is, yeah, to have that perspective and look back on it, it is really interesting because when you're in it day to day and you're trying to get people to move in the direction you want them to move, it feels like no one's moving. It feels yeah, like we've been totally. talking about BIM for a decade and a half mm-hmm. and everyone's still trying Revit for the first time on right. this project, right? Right. But in thinking back to where we were 15 years ago, it's it's remarkable how far we've come, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is, uh, you know, the amount of, not necessarily technology, but the way that we have changed the process of how we deliver buildings by leveraging technology to help us has really changed dramatically. And I'm like, I'm not a natural optimist, but like I start to look at it and think about it. And yeah, it is, it's pretty, it's pretty great that what we've done as a, as a collective group over the last 15 years. Okay. So another quote comes to mind. <laughs> We're keeping, keeping track with the quote counter. I, I think of Steve Jobs quote at this point where it's like, you can only connect the dots looking backward. You can never connect them going forward. And yeah. Yeah. what you're talking about is, yeah, like if you've lived through it, it is, You've got to kind of be in that position to be able to do that, yeah. Because the the youngest, greenest folks can't do that, right? 
Um, but it also helps kind of reset that optimism versus pessimism, uh, you know, yeah. ratio because, yeah. because we do take the new stuff for granted. Like as after you've done it for some amount of time, it's, it is normal. It is table stakes. At some point it flips the table and actually becomes those things. Yeah. But man, look how it, you actually have to stop and, and kind of celebrate. Look how far we actually have come is the AEC industry making any inroads into innovation and being more progressive and being more efficient, all these things. It's like, there's so much to do. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a deep breath. <laughs> let's but, look at what we've actually accomplished. It's been right, pretty phenomenal. Right. Yeah. And, and it is, it is like the, the whole language around technology that, that even executives and leadership can now use and now have access to is, is really remarkable. I mean, I feel like every single construction company out there is building out a product team now to build, mm-hmm. you know, products they can sell to their customers, products they can sell on the open market, things, products that they can use internally to make their processes better. It's a it's a really difficult road, but the I'm seeing just a staggering amount of investment compared to even five years ago in using software uh, as a differentiator or a value add rather than a, a, a cost center to the process of, of delivering buildings. It is interesting. And I, I had a show with Rob Yori and he, mm. I don't know if he said this during the show or not, but he talked about what he's doing at Entech and they're there because the show really wasn't about what he's doing now at Entech, but it there, there was a point in which he said that their team, you know, the VDC team, is its own cost center there that changed the game for them mm-hmm. because they now obviously know what they're capable of instead of trying to sell their wares within the corporation to various teams they know what they're capable of mm-hmm. they can go out and get their own clients and they can deliver on what they can execute the best because they fully understand it whereas other people they know a little bit they know an overview but they don't know exactitudes so, so they're the best ones to sell their own, yeah. basically determine their own destiny with them, you know, and, and, sh- and show what they can do and then have case studies to then show the rest of the company, say, Hey, yeah. c- come along for the ride with us. Yeah. And it's, so I think, uh, I'm thinking now of, of I've, several conversations I've had with my former boss, Jim Barrett, at, as the chief innovation officer at Turner, real, like, like one of the few mentors I've had in my life, you know, his, I wasn't really dark place in my career, you know, well, well, Disney was, everyone was furloughed from Disney. I didn't know the future was, was really unclear. And he said, you know, just, just go help people. Just don't, don't, don't think of anything as transactional, just like find people in the company who need help and go help them or find people outside the company and go help them. And this was sort of the philosophy that we had that Jim inspired at Turner. Like we would, we did, you know, modeling work for the charity, but they were building houses post Katrina so we did, we did volunteer, we took the VDC team and helped them model all their work and helped them panelize their, their process and, and make it more efficient to build the, build the, uh, the uh, houses. Or we did some work at Haiti and it was just a matter of like, well, we have this resource. Let's go, let's go help people. We have, we have the money and not enough money to sustain us. Uh, and, and we found really great connections to these other organizations and to, uh, and we learned a lot about our own process by doing this, this work, just by going out and helping people. And mm. it is, I think it's something that obviously it's hard to do in 
the current sort of service model, uh, consulting service model we have in the industry, mm-hmm. because every minute that someone's not spending on profitable work is anxious, makes makes the, the boss anxious, right? Sure, sure. But it, I, I really think in, in thinking back on it too, it, it, it always returns much, many more fold than, 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 you know, than the effort we take to do the thing. It's interesting. Cause again, I think you're coming back to this. I don't know if it's a theme yet, but it's going to be the idea of doing what we're good at, right. And offering it, even if it's not your day to day, it's something that you realize you have the skill, you've got capacity. Yeah. Let's go do this thing. Let's offer it up. There's so many firms out there. And you know, if you're, you're between jobs, I mm-hmm. for a, for a point was between jobs. And I look back and I think, Companies always want to be something else. Not not every company, but a lot of companies don't know who they are enough, and and so they want to be yeah. something else. And yeah. so they're always chasing. They're in that kind of reactive mode of wanting to be something they're not versus knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at, and kind of doubling down on it so mm-hmm. that you can provide more value right where you are. Because part of chasing something unknown is that you're learning it for the first time often. Yeah. And we know that you don't always even learn it right the first time, right? You've got to learn it. This is why the construction, like, I don't know if you read construction physics, the substack. Brian is, is, is an immediate read for me when it, when it comes through his, his mindset around these issues is so clear and precise. And it's exactly, you know, things I've been talking about uh, as well. It's like like stuff we all know, but he writes it so well. It's like, okay, now I never even have to worry. I can just send this to somebody. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, you talk about like the embedded nature of the way we do things in this industry. Right. And, and this is why we do it because we've always done it this way. And because every piece of the puzzle is a silo. Right. And so there's just Mm -hmm. kind of this general level of expectation out there. And that's why this industry actually works. Like we can complain about it all we want, but it does get buildings built and occupants in said buildings that they paid for in the end somehow. Uh, It's very interesting. I think of the, the, you know, we all, the famous Paul Teichold's graph, right? You've, you've seen the construction yeah. productivity from 1960 yes. to, to 2004 or whatever it was, whenever he did it. It's a very slight um, hump. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it, it actually goes down at the end, right? Yes. Uh, um, you know, by, by the measure he would, and obviously we can dispute, like there's been much dispute about the, the methodology there and everything. And I don't want to get into that, but you know, there are a lot of different theories as to why that is. And, and, you know, one that I, you know, I keep coming back to is that we don't learn from our mistakes as an industry because we're project-based because mm-hmm. once the project is over, wait in the archive bin, what's next? Yeah. Thank God we got through it. Right. Thank God we got through it and we didn't get sued and change what there wasn't too much change management that happened and we were able to get it done. Right. And that, yeah, like if you look at it, we get every year we're like maybe one percent better or two percent worse or three percent better or whatever. Kind of and averages it just out. Yeah. Averages out, and you know it's it's. I think you're spot on that. Like you know, we don't uh, if we don't learn from our mistakes, we just keep doing that same thing that we've always done, right? Mm-hmm. We keep you know because we've always done it, and it's and it's predictable, and it's as de-risked as you can be in a project by project. Uh, uh, industry, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that, that's the thing, like, I, what you're talking about with firms uh, not knowing who they are, I think firms act, actually, honestly, actively lie to themselves about what they are, mm-hmm. right? There's the, the stories we tell about what we are, it, don't, 
don't align with the reality of the work we do in a lot of cases, um, especially on the construction side. You know, construction management is the facilitation of information moving between the designer, the owner, and subcontractors, and the facilitation of moving money between those people, mm. and and also shifting risk between those people. So, a construction management firm is actually a knowledge worker firm, but they all tell the story that they're muddy built boots builders, and that superintendents that run everything, and you know. The superintendent is a is a highly specialized person that is desirable on your staff. They they don't it's not the path to leadership in, in most any construction firm because they're passionate about that work. But yeah, they're it's getting a construction firm to realize that they are knowledge workers and that they are uh, you know their their primary goal is informational transactions between different parties and how do you speed those up? Um, it's difficult when they when the story you tell is where you know, muddy boots in on the ground. I think that's key insight. And I've never thought of it that way. Let's rewind. Let's rewind the tape and play that part again. It, it was so interesting for you to frame it like that, because like my, my experience as an architect and as a builder myself on small projects and actually doing design build for a while, I, the reason I didn't think about that is because I was hands-on and I, I was the one doing the building. And so it's hard to kind of remove myself from that point of view thinking about the value of construction and how hard it actually is and all the tools that you need to have and all the sequencing knowledge that you need to have. And you are that you are talking about a role that has obviously evolved over time to the point of taking that risk on from various other parties or inventing it, like just seeing a hole, a void and filling yeah. it. That's really interesting to think about. And I can see why with that kind of a scenario, a builder like Turner would want to build a team like you had, right? Which was, is very much in control of BIM and VDC and sequencing in software ahead of time and actually being in control of all that information because small tweaks there probably yield huge returns in the end. And I, I, I want, like you say, they lie to themselves. They, they, that's just a generality, right? But it's like, no, we're builders, but but are you <laughs> like you're no, you, you don't you're pushing pixels you, you you're pushing yeah. bits you're pushing ones and zeros yeah to yeah. to gain efficiency yeah I mean I we don't actually add any direct value you know we we enable the value to be created and it's the same thing with I think with architects we enable the value to be created the value is the building there's no intrinsic value in a set of plans the process yeah right you know, it's it's part of a process mm-hmm. um, and there's no intrinsic value in a schedule. Uh, except that it gets you to the thing that is that has the value. Yeah, and that's that's a really difficult. You know, everyone wants to add value, thinks that they're they're you know that they're you know key in the process, but like it is. It, it's all enabling that guy who's got a hammer and the you know uh, and, and a nail to know where to put that nail. That's, it's hard yeah. to to put a pin in value when you're saving a company from potential yes. problems, right? Yeah. Like because if they don't happen. Ever, then they're not problems. Yeah, right. The, right. <laughs> how do you how do you convince someone to pay to de-risk a situation he doesn't see it? They don't see as risky, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that is that was like the the big struggle I think of the the early days of BIM coming into construction uh, was these were again because we just do things the way we do them. We expect this the uh, we expect a certain amount of waste and a certain amount of risk, and we're okay with that. 
Uh, we build it into our pricing model, right? And architects do as well. And because it's all uh, accounted for, there's, you know, they think, well, you know, uh, sure, I've already handled that risk or there is no risk there. I don't need to do a 4D simulation to see what's going on. I don't need to have a continuous updating ske- uh, uh, schedule or, or estimate because it's not worth the effort for the risk that I believe is exists there. This is again a, a I don't know where the, the provenance of the quote, but it, I heard it from Jim Barrett. It was the first place I heard it. Is that a problem is a hole in your brain for a solution to fall into, mm. right? If you don't have a problem or you don't see that problem, it's just going to bounce off, mm. not not come in, not be be a, a a successful part of the of the practice. Blind spots leave yeah. a lot of those holes. Unfilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, or you, or you have like, you have people who, you know, uh, there's a, in, in the world of cognitive biases that, you know, the, the idea of na- naive forecasting, uh, which is, it's not as terrible as it sounds, but it's basing your current or future work on the problem that was the most recent in your memory. Mm-hmm. So if your last project had terrible problems with the HVAC design or construction, it's all you focus on, right? And you yeah. let the other problems slip through. And the, the pro- problems are like water. They're gonna they're gonna slip through, they're gonna find the cracks they in your in your structure yeah. in your system. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. But you said something earlier about you know being able to I don't remember the exact words you used, but but it, it made me think of of you know how we don't we set up a plan. Like the uh, plans, you know, sheets of drawings are a plan to execute. They're, they're not a very good plan in often cases because there's there's a lot to interpret, there's a lot of skill that required in interpreting those and, and recompositing them as a building. And we react to change very, very poorly. I think as an industry, I think we do it. We get we get through and we we muddle through change management. But you know, the idea. I'm still baffled that we set schedules and think that they're any they're of any value they're fiction. at the beginning of a project. They're right? like time cards in an AEC firm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like creative fiction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so like you end up, I actually thought about this a, a while back that you know, if you think about a critical path for a large building, like a P3 project, it's got maybe 600 items on a critical path and the Odds, and this is something that I, I, I research at Turner, the odds that we hit the day of completion of every task exactly were about 20 to 21%, mm. right? Sometimes we were faster, sometimes we were slower, but nailing that day and being predictable along schedule. So if you think about it, if we have a 600 linear, these are coin flips. They're worse than coin flips because it, well, like, it's, it's, a, it's a die roll where you have to roll a six, Yeah. right? Yep. And you have to make 600 consecutive sixes. The odds of ending on time are infinitesimal. Um, we started talking to, again, at Turner, we started talking to the Lean, uh, the Lean Enterprise Institute out of Boston. And we brought Jim Womack, who wrote the Toyota Way. We brought him down to look at our process in New York. And he's like, and the first thing he said after we laid out the process of building, he's like, I don't know how you get this done at all. I don't yeah. know. And that's, actually, that's also, I think that's something that's on my mind because that was Brian's most recent uh, construction physics uh, newsletter. Right, but it is it's it's an incredibly complex task task, and and they're all and there's so much unpredictability. How there do is. you get to? I mean, he yeah. lays a few of them out. It's like, oh, today we hit a boulder. Oops, we uh, we had seven days of rain. Oops, we yeah. had this. Oops, the, they didn't show up to the job on time. Which everything is dependent on the thing happening correctly before it. 
Right. Right. And people have a skill if they're a tradesperson, right? They, they, the same people who install the HVAC cannot do the framing and the framing needs to be in place before they do the HVAC. So it, it is a really complex problem. And what's, what's interesting to me and, and made me, what kind of made me rethink some of my own thinking around this is how broken is it? Like we love there. It's, it's huge. This topic of conversation about it being broken and it and it feels very broken it makes me wonder how broken actually it is because it still works and so how mm-hmm. can we optimize the right things to kind of get back to one of our earlier statements yeah. like how can we optimize what we actually are good at like it makes me think okay so from from a turner point of view architects are doing bim mm-hmm. or a set of sheets to get approved by an agency which conveys design intent not instructions on how to build a building amongst other instruments of service, right? Like the specs and all that stuff. So from a construction or a contractor's point of view or a CM's point of view, that set of drawings was not made for you necessarily. There's a lot of different uses of a model. That's one of them, which is to basically create the design intent to build a building from. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Let's talk ArcViz technology. Powered by the near-limitless Unreal Engine, our friends at Twinmotion offer a fast and easy way to produce stunning real-time visualizations and immersive experiences for your clients. Twinmotion gives you the tools you need to make faster decisions and relay information to your clients in a way that instantly speaks to them. Breathe life into your scene by changing the season, the weather, the time of day, just by moving a slider, immersing your client in a way that they'll love and more importantly, be able to truly picture themselves in. Seriously, it's that easy. You have to try it to believe it. So why not share your design with stakeholders and collaborative reviews and edit your scene together? I'm a huge fan of this. There's no better way to get buy-in than by making your clients feel part of the development process. Right now, they're running an exclusive free trial for listeners of this show, which you can head to twinmotion.link slash trxl to get your hands on. Once again, that's twinmotion.link slash trxl. And now let's get back to our conversation. If, if you were to just take a fresh look at this, or maybe you think about this a lot, I don't know, but it's what should architects be asking CMs and contractors to get into the drawings to make that process go better because that's my point of view Mm -hmm. is we just don't even ask the right questions to the people who are actually going to be building it because we have other incentives being spend less time on that project so you can be more profitable being this is for permit this isn't for this its ultimate use isn't for that or or it's for visualization or it's for an energy model or you know innumerable things but what questions should we as architects be asking or is it just fine how it is? Or is it impossible to even answer that question? <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Uh, you know, one of, again, a quote from, from a friend of mine, my good friend, Jeffrey McGrew runs a uh, model number and uh, uh, because we can out here in, in San Francisco or in, in Oakland, he said that, you know, when he's doing drawings, 50% of the, of the drawing is for the authorities. It's for the permit. Mm-hmm. 50% is for uh, the contractor and what they need to build. And 50% is for covering his ass. Yeah. 
right? And so you end up with- That's 150%. And, exactly. You know, and, and obviously <laughs> our tools make it like, that was one of the big selling points of Revit when it came out. Yeah. It's easy to put a sheet together. It's faster, you know? Um, so we've started putting together more and more sheets. And uh, at one point at Turner, we had the opportunity to model Avery Fisher Hall in, in at Lincoln Center because they were going to do a renovation of it. And the I got the original structural drawings for that when they were- 13 pages. I was going to say, how you know, thin was this set? <laughs> the overall set was, was under a hundred pages yeah. for a massive, you know, a massive, massive, uh, 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 concert hall. And because there was an economy to them because they were hand-drawn. So every piece of information was instantiated once and back-referenced everywhere mm-hmm. on the drawings, the curve of the wall. I remember, you know, I had to hunt for where's the, where's the actual curve of that, of the, the, the concert hall's wall. And I found on one page where they set out all of the geometries. That was the, the hard and fast rule back then, right? It was, yeah. it was do it, do it once. Yep. Yeah. D- don't, don't duplicate information on multiple sheets because guess what? When it changes, you're screwed. Yeah, exactly. But then our tools have, have, have evolved to allow us to produce more faster. So we produce more faster. And I think it actually leads to less good drawing sets. Mm. But, you know, I think, one thing that the other thing I want to unpack about that is the lack of empathy in the industry. Mm-hmm. Every architect, if you get them drunk, will talk about how the contractor doesn't understand their design, how they've messed up this, how they're they're trying to substitute that, they're trying to do all these things that de- detract from my uh, artistic and, or design intent. Mm-hmm. Um, you get any contractor drunk, well, you got to give them more alcohol. Usually when they get drunk, they start talking about, well, this architect doesn't know anything about how this building goes together. And they, you know, and they don't understand what we go through and blah, 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 blah. And they're both Um, right. (laughs) And they're both right. They're absolutely both right. Because, you know, you value, there are different things you value and different things you're, you're paying attention to. And uh, because I, I think it's hard to have empathy grow. Like what is the trying to, to, uh, figure out what a contractor needs on the drawing as an architect is difficult because it's you have to put yourself in their mindset. Trying to, to know there. is a lot different than just asking, though, right? Like, right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, but I think asking that, that pride. That gets, is, yeah, gets in the way. It, well, it gets to a set. Well, there's definitely pride, but I think it gets to the, the second point with the empathy is that there's no. Um, it's a it's a combative industry. We're still we're all competing for the you know to to extract as many dollars as we can from this project uh, so that we can pay, we can pay our staff and feed our families and so forth. You know, this makes me think, you know, that, well, they're obviously in a design bid build world, you're going to have antipathy. You're going to have people at each other's throats because you're just throwing a, a set of drawings over the wall and hoping it works out, and then and then picking the, the lowest bidder, and then, and then RFIs start coming back over the wall, right yeah. uh, from the from the lowest bidders. Um, and I thought going to Disney because they were vertically integrated was a really was you know, and even WeWork or, or Katera at the time. I thought that was the future because consolidating design, engineering, and construction under one roof should mean that everyone's aligned and working towards the same goal. Yeah, it didn't turn out to be the case, right? Uh, because everyone brings their baggage from the industry. Uh, the, you know, you, we had the architecture and engineering team that didn't trust the construction management team at, at Disney. And they, you know, they just fought the same battles. They all, it was better, but it wasn't perfect because they're bringing all of this mistrust and lack of empathy, uh, mm-hmm. to, to a place where they really should and could be working together. Um, and I think it's why also IPD just sort of failed to, 
crack more than like one percent of of projects in in you know in the country just because it's it's very difficult to take people who have been proven right about their mistrust of the of the other of their counterparty. Well, and uh, that negativity is a cancer for sure. Yeah, because yeah. it's it, and what I mean by that is it spreads right mm-hmm. like wildfire, and not only that, but because our teams are so transient, one project that one team that works on one project is not even going to be the same team most likely that works on the next project, let alone bringing the multiple silos together. So you talk about IPD, like it, it works for that project because they're so embedded and they're mm-hmm. spending so much face time together and they're finishing each other's sentences in the big room and yeah. doing that live coordination and solving problems together, like actually working through the problems together builds relationship Mm-hmm. When that project's over, that team doesn't go to the next project. They disperse, and then parts of it might come back, but chances are cancer's going to come in, right? Yeah. Who yeah. didn't have that experience. They've had plenty of other terrible experiences, right? and they're bringing that baggage to the table. And it is, it's a very real thing that a lot of people don't think about when they're talking about this bright warm future that we could have right. together yeah. right right yeah the, the the transiency of the teams is absolutely the you know that's sort of the death knell of that i mean one of the things that was really cool in new york is that when we started starting out with bim at yankee stadium and and then you know world trade center there were so few trade draftsmen who could model we'd see the same 10 people on every project they were mm-hmm. like they were, they, were they were experts yeah and so that like there was actually a time in new york when people were really performing we actually you know going from the coordination at uh world trade to the coordination at the new york police academy which was the next project on the list it was the same team that moved over and mm-hmm. they were wildly productive um they coordinated that thing just astoundingly fast it was a big success story that we talked about for years and we go to conferences because you'd had a team that had already built trust by sitting in a room together at the world trade center for six months. And the cool thing about the side side thing about that project is that we were actually sitting in an old, a law firm and it collapsed during the 2008 uh, uh, crisis. And so we were sitting at this like massive Oak, Six hundred thousand uh, dollar like boardroom table, and all these guys, you know, just sitting around it and talking to each other constantly, and you know, like on the forty second floor of World like Trade imagining Center. design studio in a law firm, yeah, a boardroom, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah, that's so. That's that. That's it's true because you think about the way that these teams come together now, and especially with uh, I, I wonder kind of what the future holds because. Mm-hmm of well there's there's kind of two competing things right now there's the need for housing new buildings Mm -hmm. and there's this huge need of renovation existing stock or reuse they're very they're not spin i think i I was talking about this with fed on the show it was like there the answer is not always a new building right and we do have a lot of stuff out there which means smaller projects which means a lot more moving around, a lot more light touch, a lot more adding value, but, but at the, at the, at the expense of the kind of relationships that we're talking about, I think, I don't know. And that's to me where technology really could come in and be a tool to be used to level everybody up together. If Mm -hmm. everybody is willing to acknowledge the problem and share resources. I mean, I, I know that's what 
Ian's trying to do at Hypar with creating a platform that people can share resources on. I know there's other technologies out there that are that are of kind of a similar mode of thinking, which is like stop reinventing the wheel. Let's all move forward together. But everybody is so heads down on the project and there is so much cancer out there that it makes it really hard to meaningfully change and move yeah. forward together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I just realized that you know we've we've spent the last hour talking about the past. Yeah, you know, uh, there's two old men talking about the past. What what great uh, what great podcast that that makes. But this um, is a this is exactly what is needed so that we don't take what we have for granted. Like this right. this yeah. this fulfills yeah. what I was saying earlier. I hope. <laughs> but yeah, like I I really like I like some of the way that the, so. Yeah, I, I think I would expand on what Fed said and say like but sometimes the best building isn't even a building. Yeah. You know, and and of course, we as de- designers and builders, we just assume that that's because our business model is, that's is what we do. Yeah. do doing drawing sheets or or building buildings. It's you know every pro you know, that's the solution every time. I really like I I don't I haven't really talked to folks recently who are doing this, but there was a trend for a little while of architects building out consulting uh, groups like business consulting inside of their inside the business as a way of cre- creating a greater connection to their customer. You know, and going in and saying, "Okay, we, you think you need this new building? Let's work with you to see if we can, you know, actually move, change your business around, or change your physical infrastructure around, so that you can still exist in the same space and that you have." Which is a really fascinating way to 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 to, to prosecute like a design problem, mm-hmm. right? Is yeah. rather than thinking about the risky thing of building an entire building, let's yeah. think about how we can or the expense, you, yeah, yeah. We had a success story like that at HMC where it was uh, it was an existing OR and it was there was tons and tons of problems. We took because hospitals actually do capture pretty good data, yeah. we were able to take that, run it through simulations and say, Okay, here's where the bottlenecks are. Let's move these three walls. They thought they needed a whole new wing, a whole new tower right. to the to the to the hospital. They didn't. They needed to move some walls. Yeah. And and do you, I mean that it basically guarantees you a client for life when you do something like that too right. yeah but it's yeah. hard to see that far down the road when i need to feed families and keep the machine running right here right now yeah yeah i mean you know you're you're you deliver them the value of a tower mm-hmm. with moving three walls i mean right. like so like so if we go into thinking about value-based pricing you should have gotten the the the, the, <laughs> the amount that you would have gotten for executing yeah. a, a an tower. entire tower right. right uh but yeah that's that's i think another real problem is is you know making is selling hours is is really i think it's i think it's on its way out i hope it's on its way out yeah uh, it's selling selling value uh is uh, hopefully the future yeah i think again technology helps with that right you know i i'm really impressed with some of the stuff that like lend lease is doing with podium uh and again they're still they're hoarding it themselves right they're mm-hmm. saying we're going to create the product uh which is maybe not as you know, as ideal as like say Hypar or other platforms that are that are about sharing uh, knowledge and sharing expertise, but they're doing market analysis, right? Like we can do market analysis so you can see where the best place is to put your building. We can give that to you, and we've already delivered value to you. Then, if you've if you've identified the right site, and so I think you know, there's a lot of cool technology enabled stuff uh, that's going to expand the scope, not necessarily drive into our core business practices. But expand the scope of business for architects, engineers, and contractors. Yeah, a, a, a close friend of mine recently said, you know, licensed architects kind of puts you in a, a pretty narrow definition. 
what we really are is licensed problem solvers. Yep. And every problem needs a licensed problem solver. It doesn't matter. Like, and and it, it helps us reframe who we are and what the value is that we bring to the table when the answer does not naturally go to it's a building, right? So by being trained as problem solvers, it opens you up to a world of opportunity to do things like what we're talking about here. Yeah. And and then I think your value is then proven in a much more real way to a lot bigger of an audience because we, we all know how small the audience is who actually buys architecture, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, I actually have a question for you on that. Like if we have, you know, that's the, that's the thing that you're looking for. That's the thing you're trying to bring into your firm. How do you identify those people when you're trying to hire folks uh, yeah, to, to do that kind of work? That's a good question. I, and, and I think, man, I don't even know how to answer that because how do you identify that in people that you've never worked with before? Right. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that's a tough nut to crack. And I don't think there's a lot of people in the architectural industry who necessarily even know to speak about themselves in that way. The way that I do it with, with stories that I tell are about the more intangible things that clients have said about projects that I've done for them. And so mm-hmm. for instance, you know, there's, there's one client who I, I designed an elementary school for, and I mean, it's a district, right? So it's not a person, it's not a single figurehead. It was a board and it was lots and lots of stakeholders. And the public had not seen what the school looks like yet at all. And the, the, they're at a board meeting, public's there, and they say, when do we get to see it? What's it going to be like? Because obviously they have a vested interest. Their kids are going to be going there. They're thinking about construction schedules and all those things and the timing lines up for when their kids are going to end up in a K-12 or a K-6 school. So he just said, you know, he put his hand on the guy's shoulder and said, it's the school you've always dreamed of. (laughs) And to to me, that is the kind of thing that I could wear on my shoulder for years to come as a designer, but also as somebody who, like, getting back to that empathy and trying to solve the that's what designers do they're trying to solve problems for their clients clients in the public realm you're trying to really understand their problems not the problems of the administration and the infighting and the politics and all you got to do that too but you also have to design it for the kids who are going to be there every day yeah and so i don't know if that answers your question i I might be completely off topic but i I tend to think (laughs) it's a lot more intangible you have to tell stories like that so that people can see the possibilities of outcomes and imagine themselves in a better future later. Yeah. I think that the, you hit it around the nose there. That's the thing. You know, I, I'm always looking for people who have the imagination to, to tell the story of what, what they want to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you have the, that problem solving skills and I think architects again, are uh, this, the education is such that, you end up being a really good systems thinker coming out of architectural education. You think about, you know, multivariable optimization uh, is sort of implicit in every decision you make as an architect because you're trying to optimize this this project so that it can get built, so that you can see it in the world. I mean, unless you're a star architect and you just want to build a, a giant staircase, a shiny, a shiny staircase, a shiny staircase. Well, like like Dave Gilmore, our mutual friend, I think he says. Um, you don't want to be an architecture firm. You want to be a solutions provider. Yeah. Right. So thinking widely 
don't think so narrowly about what it is that you were trained to do in school as an outcome. But this is very much like a licensed problem solver kind of a thinking, right? It's like you can help people in lots of ways, kind of like the example you shared at Turner when you guys decided to help people panelize so that they could build replacement housing faster. It's like that's a solution that nobody would have come to you for you had right. to actually go to them and say, Hey, and figure out what they, this. Yeah. 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 Figuring out what they need is yeah. So they're going out and then that, that extends to the software world too. It's just, you know, you have to go out and talk to people um, and figure out what they are looking for. Um, what, what problem you actually want to solve, what, what problem they want to solve more than they want to have money. Right. That's the other way, you, of, you know, I think it like, you know, you have to build a product that they want more than they want the money that's in their bank account. Right. Same way to frame and, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so you have to really be radically attuned to the customer's desire. And then, you know, it's interesting too, if you think about like software is easier in some ways because it is the customer's right there. But to your point, the customer of that K six school is, the, is, is the, are the kids in the school. And so you're getting a translation of a translation of a translation. Yeah. And then you're creating yeah. a set of drawings that are, that are then translated and tra- you know, by the CM and then translated by the subcontractors. And you just, yeah, exactly. A big game of telephone, right? And, and there's really- so much pushback in the middle of that scenario where a contractor is going to be like, well, why, why are you doing it like this? And then, and then mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, I got to go back through so many layers of the onion to even answer that question because yeah. like the answer is there. There's a reason why we decided to do that it's deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's buried yeah. over there. It's not like I just decided to do that just because, and for no reason. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. A, I mean, I've always real. thought the, you know, the way I sort of visualize the money in the process uh, of, of building, you know, is uh, money accretes at points of friction in the process, right? You, if there's a point of friction uh, that can be solved with a piece of software, you buy the piece of software. If there's a point of friction that can be solved by expert uh, analysis, you hire the expert, right? And so, you know, when we talk about building a frictionless uh, data pipeline for the industry, which is like, I think a lot of people's goal these days, I think it kind of scares uh, folks in the, in the value chain because like, well, if it's frictionless, where do I add my value? Where do I add my value and take out my money? And, you know, am I being uh, made irrelevant in this, with this technology? And, you know, I don't want to pick it up because it may, impact my bottom line. You know, it's one of the things I always see with one of the things that, that CMs are always trying to get uh, out of their relationships with their subcontractors is productivity rates. How fast can you do these things? How much labor does it take you to do these things? And then subcontractors, of course, guard that information very closely because if they, you know, it, they, they, they alone know their margin when they're bidding work, right? And so the CM is trying to guess when they get the bid in, you know, how close is like how much are they taking away from me in profit by 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 me offloading this risk and this contract onto them? Um, and I say that's why you know uh, subcontractors drive Maseratis and CMs drive BMWs and architects drive Volvos, right? Is it the the more risk there is, the more the the more you can uh, take profit out of a out of a faulty and and friction frictionful system? Friction filled. Yeah, yeah. It, it it what's interesting to me is with the democratization of you know let's just processes uh, via technology. People who don't adopt will just get usurped anyway, 
And so no matter how much they try to protect or to hang on to that thing, it can't last forever, right? Like somebody will find a way around it. I kind of worry about that for our whole profession of architecture though, right? Because right now you, you have to use an architect because you need that stamp for certain building typologies. But what if you didn't? Would people go to architects still if they didn't? Pretty much not, right? Like I, I know that there was a survey at one point where they, they asked other professions like lawyers and doctors and you know CPAs and all these. Okay, so if you didn't have to use an architect to do the exact same thing that you need them to do right now for you, would you use them? Heck no, no way. Yeah. Immediate yeah. answer. Didn't even have to think about it, right? Because they don't see the value in the process, which mm-hmm. is where we have staked our claim is by creating this, you know, black box of a process. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, thanks. I would rather just get the building, right? I just want the thing at the end of the, of the journey. Yeah. I don't want to go through the journey necessarily to get there. Yeah. I mean, the, the journey is, is only, yeah, that, that the journey is only necessary because it's necessary, right? It's, it's a sort of teleological argument that you, know, you have to do it because of regulation or because, yeah, because, uh, 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 you don't have the ability to to generate to take your program and turn it into uh, a physical building. Uh, you don't have that skill set. Yeah, I, I. This is always a touchy area, right? Because this is where we start talking about people losing jobs, mm-hmm. um, which is like, you know, that's one of the things that really I really worry about with software going forward. Is and I don't worry about necessarily, like, you know, people losing jobs to a, a you know piece of software, or certainly not to a bricklaying robot, right? But I do worry about people being able to adapt to a new business model. That, that there is going to emerge a new there's a new business model for architects and contractors is going to emerge in the next couple of decades, and uh, there's going to be survivors and there's going to be people who can't make that transition. And again, like the Steve Jobs quote, you can't you know can't connect the dots forward right now. I'm I'm actually having a really hard time being a futurist these days because everything is so in flux and there's so much uh, innovation happening in, in all corners of the industry. It's hard to pick out what are the things that are going to be really important to us in, in 10 years. I think, you know, I know I'm no longer there, but I think what Hypar is doing is going to be radically important to the industry in the next decade. I think that, that not necessarily generative design, but the ability to to program, you know, do do a declarative programming of uh, a building, mm. say, you know, be able to be able to to, to tell a, a computer so- a software, you know, I want to build a building. And once upon a time, there was a little house that was at the corner of 60th Street in San Pablo, and had two stories. Be able to tell a story to it in natural language uh, and have it actually execute that is, you know, and that's a way again, but that's a way where the architects lose out unless they're the ones uh, writing those algorithms and writing mm-hmm. that, that software, which is again, why I think that Hypar's project is so important because mm-hmm. it does give that power back to the people who are, you know, who can, you know, download their expertise into a platform and then earn money every time it's used, mm-hmm. right. Turning architecture into a product, turning your, your design intent into a product. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, and I think, you know, we are starting to see obviously a lot of programming and, and computational work happening in the schools, but I think we have, need to have more. I mean, I think we, you know, we should be learning. Uh, you know, I never learned a, a programming language in my architecture pro- program, which you know is and it's okay. I'm a dinosaur now, and I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. 
But like, that's going to be wildly important in the next couple of decades to be able to, to distill your knowledge and your expertise into a, into a piece of software. Right. Well, especially if you are interested in designing the future in which this profession will inhabit instead of just being along for the ride and, and kind of experiencing it uh, for better or worse, you know, chances are worse if, if you yeah. don't agree, if, if, if you're not part of the decision making, then you probably won't like what you get. So, for a, a tool like that one to exist amongst others, to that puts the agency into the hands of those willing to yeah. roll up their sleeves and do it, we absolutely need that education to happen. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, I think you know, thinking about your current project, like there is, you know, there's. So much, I think the vast majority of what a construction manager can do, do uh, can be automated away. And, you know, because it's about connecting information between contract subcontractors and the design team mm-hmm. um, and interpret, interpreting that information and doing, giving direction. Uh, I think a lot of that has a chance to be automated as well. And I don't think that construction management firms are as prepared even as architects for that future right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> what's positive about the future what like what are you excited about right now uh, i was gonna ask you that actually like yeah. you you your fingers are on i think the pulse more than mine i you want to take a crack at that one first <laughs> i'll riff off of it oh it's just it's so hard i mean you know obviously i'm excited about you know the, the declarative uh uh in programming of uh, programmatic execution of buildings i'm you know uh it's what you find when you start doing product management is that there are a billion things you can do and they're all really cool. And that like you should become much more capable of saying the word no than the word yes. So mm. like I'm trying to rack my brain out and think of the things that are really exciting moving forward. I don't know that they're, you know, uh, I, I really like the companies that are exciting me right now are companies that have a very clear value proposition and easy to scaffold into an organization. Um, there's a company uh, out of Los Altos called Versatile, Versatile AI. And they have a, just a sensor rig that you can attach to a crane hook, right? So you get, you know, the pick, the, you know, the load capacities, all, all the things. And it's also a camera, so you can see the whole site and see is where better to put a camera than on the crane over the site. And now and they, now they're building this real wealth of analytics around the process of, of construction. Uh, they're going to be able to do, and I think everyone is sort of converging on this now in the AI space, but like Autodesk and Procore, and versatile and other folks converging on the space where you can use artificial intelligence and predictive analytics to spot problems before the superintendent spots them, mm-hmm. right? Or spot problems before the job captain spots them. That's, you know, that to me is, is a, you know, if I'm framing this all as like, what, what excites me is things that remove friction from the process. And that removes a lot of friction when you can see things faster than you could before. Uh, you know, there's, you know, being being able to know it before it happens uh, is key value. Um, is it pretty easy for companies in that realm to adopt that type of stuff because they see that immediate value? Yeah, I think. Well, so I've had a mixed experience with that. Um, I've said people that by doing you know uh, predictive loading of scheduling, you know, with with reconstruct uh, was another another great piece of software. Or just you know Procore's uh, observation and analysis that you have inside the platform, it it is valuable if it's credible, 
And that's the difficulty with any AI or ML solution is that when you present it to an expert, it's very hard for them to say, oh, I couldn't, I didn't see that. I, you know, they're like, oh, of course, of course that's how it is. I saw that before. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and the, the, the value proposition really then is you have one great contract or one great uh, superintendent. Now you have 50 great superintendents, right? You have, you have the knowledge of your best superintendent or you have the knowledge of your best drywall con- uh, installer that could be disseminated across the organization through software and through, you know, the, their, their, their eye for trouble and risk can get disseminated to everyone in the organization, um, which makes everyone more powerful. Right. Yeah. I guess it gets back to that idea of being, you know, having a, a solution that is preventative of some future problem that I don't have right now. <laughs> it's right. hard to, right. hard to adopt that kind of, <laughs> I, I think something that, you know, as a big general generality, and maybe this is, I have a kind of a balanced two-sided thing here, which is I'm excited that there's so many, number one, just like VC money and investment happening mm-hmm. in all of the different pieces of the puzzle where there is that very distinct value proposition amongst many different players and they're not necess- they're not really trying to step on each other's toes they're trying to solve the one thing and these things talk to each other via APIs and it yeah. provides a holistic solution together and it's not relying upon a single monolithic solution to yeah. because not everybody has the same problem number 1 right. right so if if new features get added to the monolith this year it only serves a very small segment of the user base whereas if you're kind of putting your own puzzle together you get to pick and choose you know as often as you want to yeah. swap a piece in or or pull a piece out or whatever it's it's why it's, it's fascinating like i've seen numerous times when people have tweeted out what they believe is like the best current tech stack for an architecture firm. Like George Valdez, you know, said like, you know, said the architecture firm, you know, like this, like these seven pieces of software are the crucial pieces of software for for developing the business. Um, But thinking about it as a tech stack rather than as like, you know, these individual platforms. So you can combine and recombine how they, how the information moves between them, uh, you know, in this sort of uh, graph of all of the, the products and tools you have. And you can draw new value streams through by connecting different nodes uh, on the graph, uh, you know, in in uh, in real time with yeah. these like these separate and distinct platforms, right? That like hopefully we'll all talk to each other. Like that's the, you know, that's the real real struggle. And I think the VCs have, have turned the corner on this. Um, like a lot, you know, five years ago, it seemed like everyone was trying to convince these these uh, tools to become platforms to expand mm-hmm. out. Like Plan Grid started with plan visualization, then it comes into issue management and all these other things. And everyone sort of converged back to project management, which was the real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was, you know, the VCs were, were telling them to, to gain users, gain platform, gain more functionality, grab market share from more, more people. More, and I think, yeah. and I think that's changing. I think they're now much more strategic about, you know, be the best thing you can be, be the best solution for a specific problem and then connect to all of the other tools very effectively realizing um, that there's a pretty much a cap at how how big you can get or how far you can go. Yeah. Yeah. I think my my balanced take on this though is that it's very real, right? There's this digital fatigue out there. And uh for the people who are actually doing the work, another app is just like another headache, right? And it's another yeah. UI that I have to learn and it's another set of keyboard shortcuts and where am I going to save my files? And to me that's probably the the biggest downside is, is people just don't want to hear about a new 
another piece of the puzzle. And so that's where change management is very difficult because it is easy to buy a single piece of software that does it all or a suite that is all run by one company because they are highly integrated and they do talk to each other really well already. So that fatigue is real and, and recognizing that and still trying to find a way to solve a problem in a great way is a balancing act that's really hard. It's yeah. really hard that people have to deal with. I hate to dip into the past again, but you know, just the, uh, you know, when we were, uh, I was Turner and DPR were doing a joint venture uh, at the Google campus in, in Mountain View. And working with Google is interesting because they bring a lot of knowledge and expertise that we don't think about in the industry to the table. So we did a, a you know, penetration test, you know, security analysis of the job site trailer. We found that there were 37, 37 different platforms and tools that were moving information in and out of that trailer. And so like, that's a huge problem because I don't know where to look for, I have to remember and hold my head, the 37 different places I have to look for information. And that's why I think Procore is so successful because they're trying to do this. They're trying to be the platform where you can go and get every single piece of information. The single source of truth, right? Yeah. And I wonder if there is like, if maybe they are the future uh, as they build up their marketplace, right? That, that. They allow it to act as a hub where you can, all this information is reporting into a single source of truth, a single feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, rather than, you know, having it go, uh, having it be locked in different platforms, locked behind certain, you know, gated uh, gardens, shall we say. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, well, I, I wish mine could be even more positive than that, but I, I do feel like it's kind of balanced, right? There is a, there are two sides to that coin and I, I see new, developments happening every day that i'm really excited about that nobody wants to hear about <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a it's the world we live in so yeah. well i i really appreciate hanging out with you today and having this conversation about all things it's been it's been really fun yeah this is great um i always love a conversation like this and and you know i i apologize to your listeners for spending so much time in the dim and distant past uh, <laughs> next time we talk we'll have to make a, a rule that it's it's just we're just looking forward we're just looking at the next five to ten to fifteen years yeah well let's do it again i appreciate it all right thanks Evan. Thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this episode of Troxel Podcast. You can visit twinmotion.link slash TRXL, or I've made it easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes and download your copy of Twinmotion for free. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>